0: blog talk radio and welcome to be above leadership's blog talk radio Uh, i'm ursula pottinger and i'm here with the co-founder and my good buddy and that's and today's big topic is (laughs) what is empathy really exploring the human <laughs> empathy system. And I think we've really, um you know, we want to use a metaphor. I think we've got a big steak in front of us.
1: A big buffet, maybe. You know, we've got a big <laughs> uh, steak as in S-T-E-A-K, not S-T-A-K-E, steak. Like we've we we right. got a buffet. Exactly. I love this. So so it's great to be here. We haven't done this for a while, so it's lovely to be back. Um, I love this topic, and I find like many things, this is something where we don't understand. As humans, we haven't really been taught a lot of the fine-tuning, and people will just say empathy like it's a thing, like it's a stake, right? And what we've yeah. seen with neuroscience is, holy mackerel, it is not a mackerel either. It's not a mackerel, it's not a steak. It's a buffet. It's a, there's a lot of ingredients that go into making this meal, and we need to understand it with, a, with more complexity. And I think this really fits, Ursula, with what we have learned over about 10, 12 years about the brain in general, which is that pretty much almost everything's going to be a system, not a thing. Absolutely, and,
0: uh, you know, it's an interesting thing before I looked, uh, or we, uh, you know, looked at the empathy system, uh, you know, it was sort of a thing for me, like, empathy is this one thing, you know, you either feel mm-hmm. it or you don't, and you're either good at it or you don't, and knowing that it is a system and so incredibly layered has really helped me understand when I don't have it and when I do have it.
1: Yeah, Or and what kind you have and what kind other people have and how the various types can get, you know, disrupted and are interconnected. And I think probably the the guy that really inspired us around this is a really lovely, he seems like a lovely man. We haven't met him in person. But his name is Simon Baron Cohen. He's a, a British academic and he is the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, so if that name sounds familiar, they're related, and he he actually, his research started out in autism, and then morphed into this, uh, or started to include this whole um, interest in empathy, and kind of big, big picture is he ended up doing brain scan work, and a lot of it Uh, was on uh, psychopaths in Broadmoor Prison in England and looking at what was Mm -hmm. going on in their brains as as well as others. But what he's identified is 13 different areas of the brain that activate in empathy and include both the right and the left hemisphere of the brain, which is one of the myths that I certainly had, Ursula. How about you? Empathy was like a right hemisphere, you know. Oh, so Absolutely. Say. Yeah, no, that is, uh,
0: that is, uh, that very much was an aspect, uh, of the right hemisphere. And, you know, uh, having, you know, 13 different gray areas. I mean, we don't have an hour to cover 13 no. of them. No, so no, and it, it's,
1: right. And we, we're we not going to go to that level of detail. No. And we are actually in a little, little toward the end. We will actually talk about some of the specific things that actually are more in the right hemisphere, but let's talk about the two big buckets, Ursula. What are the big yes. buckets we need to understand? The, the two yeah, types, the two big buckets,
0: the two types, the two big buckets are cognitive empathy, um, which is uh, where the person can actually process how another person feels, but, they don't feel it themselves. They understand it cognitively, but they do not have a similar internal state as the other person. So I find that already very interesting. So that's the one. Really. Really. really,
1: Yeah. Really interesting there. And I, and I want to make the, the, um, you know, add on to what you're saying, because I find that that is that, that helped me understand a lot of certain types but the, one of the things I think is important there is you can have both buckets. You can have one bucket or the other bucket, or you can have both. So if you have cognitive, you need the other kind in order to also feel. So what's the other kind, Ursula? Yeah, and the other one is effective or felt empathy. Um,
0: And that is really where the mirror neurons, and we will talk about mirror neurons uh, in a little bit, and the various biochemical processes in our own bodies are a reflection of the state of the other person where we really feel what the other person is feeling themselves. So really quite different, not only from a, um, brain perspective but also literally from a self perspective
1: yeah from a from a body perspective and i think mm-hmm. about you know this is the often when people talk about empathy they will um, especially in our field which is coaching and human development they will kind of make more of an argument for this empathy is this. And, and what's interesting mm-hmm. about Simon Baron Cohen, the other work, the other research that we've done or, or reading that we've done on empathy is to say it is, this is a one very powerful aspect. And, and you can certainly, many of us have both we can understand, but we can also, if we see a, you know, someone, you know, hurt their, you know, fall down and hurt their knee, we feel a little bit in our own body. We want to grab our own knee, right? Or we Mm -hmm. watch somebody, you know, going through a difficult emotional time, you know, they've got a sick animal or something. We kind of feel a little tug in our own heart. That's more the effective or felt empathy, and it can be a really, uh, it can be a really critical thing if you have, if you, if you have, if you don't have that, there can be some real downsides to it. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. And, and Baron Cohen, uh, you know, talks uh, and, and mentions this, um, you know, that really, we really do need both because if you only have cognitive empathy without self-empathy, that can actually be dangerous. And I found that really Interesting, and I'm 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 assuming, and what I'm making up about it. If we don't feel it in our own bodies to connect to the other human being, um, as you know, as part of the mirror neuron system, is really hard. We understand it, but we yeah. don't actually
1: feel it. Yeah, and it and you know, so on the on the one hand, that can just be confusing, where you're sort of why is this person doing what they're doing or crying or angry Mm -hmm. if you can't feel it it can be it can be sort of confusing and therefore the more cognitive empathy you have the more context and experience you you may be able to cognitively understand that and it's not so mysterious and that would be in sort of the Mm -hmm. pro-social way But in the antisocial way, like in antisocial personality disorders, you would find that this then can be used to manipulate. And so I'll give the example of Ted Ted Bundy, the psychopath and serial killer. He understood how people would feel. And so he would do things like, um, you know, pretend he had a broken arm and things like that, because he knew that that would make people more open to him. So it was a manipulative Mm -hmm. thing. But the ability to really hurt someone, really, you know, like intentionally hurt someone. We all hurt each other unintentionally, unfortunately, at times. But to intentionally hurt someone, I think you would have to shut off because if I'm going to, you know, hit or worse, if someone, it could feel, if my my mirror neurons are on and my, you know, that sort of thing, um, it's going to feel like I'm hitting myself yes of course yeah absolutely now it it, it will feel like we are hurting ourselves and that keeps us you know it's part of the the benefit of having this effective empathy system part of our system is just is to prevent us from hurting each other it's to extend our our understanding to each other and you know, mirror neurons, as we've mentioned, maybe this is a good time to talk about those a little more as part of this effective empathy or felt empathy. You know, they they do. T- they're neurons that fire. They're mirroring. They're mirroring someone else's experience. Whether you're watching it, present to it, reading about it, even hearing about it, you're getting a kind of a shadow uh, with your own neural um, networks of how what's going on over there. Mm. We use it a lot as as coaches, Um, and what's one of the things, Ursula, I've always found interesting about this is that the closer the connection we feel to another person or group, the more likely we are to have mirror neurons, and if we do not feel that that group is part of our group, we we may not get that firing, and so then we can, we might not hurt our family, but we could hurt a stranger, especially if they really present as being from a different group. Is that a good way to explain that? I think...
0: Yeah, I, I agree. There are so many, I think, examples right now, uh, you know, in the world of 2021 where people talk about division and what I'm really seeing in this conversation, um, it is division, but it's really based on this uh, aspect of empathy and, you know, one group feeling they have no connection to the other group because of values yeah. and beliefs yeah. and all that. Uh, that they simply can't connect to, and then we don't hear each other, we don't feel each other, we don't have any understanding, uh, you know, of the other group. And and I think that's part of the division that we feel now.
1: Yeah, and it's... Um... Yeah, and I think the other thing that I am really uh, find fascinating is, and we're going to go into a little more layers with some of this, but stress can, in multiple aspects of the empathy system, stress can have a big, big impact. And so it is one of the things that can tone down your affective empathy, and it can definitely impact cognitive empathy. And One of the things that I think is really interesting is that this affected, effective or felt empathy, which is using mirror neurons as well as other things, generally doesn't turn off unless we're super stressed. Mm -hmm. Cognitive, you know, cognitive empathy seems more accessible when people are in a pleasant, balanced, emotionally receptive state. And, you know, it's kind of like they, it needs a little more brain power and so again, stress and other things can. It's. It's a, I think cognitive empathy is a little more easily switched on and off, whereas affective empathy mm-hmm. is more built in, like part of us. Mm. Mm.
0: That's really. Um, that's really interesting, and I am wondering um, why that might be. Why is cognitive empathy so much easier to uh, to switch off? Um, Versus the one that is built, and I, yeah.
1: Do you have a do
0: you have a a thought
1: on that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'd have to look more deeply at you know what the researchers say. But my initial sort of like gut response to this is that anything cognitive you can move around, and so if you don't want to have your cognitive, you know, if you don't want to understand, you just look at it from a you know a different way of looking at it. and Mm -hmm. so if there's a a, if there's a hidden agenda a bias you're looking for confirmation you can find a way out of it whereas Mm -hmm. if you have strong felt empathy and there are people we'll talk about this in a minute there are people baron cohen calls like hyper empathizers if you have a strong one there it's visceral so it's it happens it's going to happen probably in a different mode of the brain that is quicker to respond. Well, and, uh, you know,
0: in the first uh, description of affective or felt empathy, uh, you know, we did say, and and this is uh, Simon Baron Cohen, uh, due to various biochemical processes in our yeah. own bodies, and I think that is just not, you, that's much harder to switch off and, you know, and change versus, yeah. you know, cognitive, yeah. which... Um, you know, seems more uh, sort of uh, the way I see cognitive empathy it's more like an assessment almost it's sort of a dry yeah. looking at something
1: yeah you have a choice if I'm motivated to have empathy because I have a care for this person and you know relationship I'm motivated to have that I'm motivated to understand and I'm in a place where I've got the bandwidth to understand and the brain power to understand I will under, I will do my best to try to understand this but um, but I'm not necessarily generally going to have an internal sensation and you know, in talking yes. to, to folks who have more cognitive versus affective empathy and I have a um you know, I've known known people like in my family who have this. They're very empathetic, you know, but it doesn't impact their System as much as you know. If I go to see a, a movie where there's where it's, it's kind of like hard to take, you know. There's a lot of mm. people going through pain. I may come out of there feeling a little, you know, toxified, <laughs> right? Because I've yes. Been, yes. I've not just been understanding it. I've been feeling it. So I think feeling that's why it. it's easier yep. to easier to turn it on and off. So um, yep. let's talk a little bit about. This other really interesting thing, and by the way, for anybody who's listening, Simon Baron Cohen, um, just a little shout out to him, he has a book called The Science of Empathy, oh, The Science of Evil and that talks about this and he's also got some he's if you go on youtube just go take a look he's got some good talks and he's a very uh he's just a very heart-centered lovely you know you just feel like you'd like to have dinner with him so we think he must be an empathetic guy (laughs) so he rates (laughs) empathy he rates empathy from a low of zero to a high of six and he would say at level zero is where you get this psychopathic. Um, he says at mm-hmm. zero degrees of empathy, you can have a psychopath, narcissist, and borderline personality. At, but he splits zero, which I find really cool and I really like this, into zero negative and zero positive. Because he, as I mentioned earlier, his original where he has, a lot, has done a lot of research is in the autism spectrum. And he says there are people who have less empathy or are lower on the empathy curve but have no, no ill intent. And mm-hmm. they, that actually can even have a positive impact in certain professions, in, cert, in certain you know, aspects of life that just – being zero empathy or lower on this empathy bell curve, which we'll talk about, does it's not necessarily awful, but it can be. So he, I really like that he has those two types. I think that's really fair. Yeah, no,
0: I, I, I love that.
1: Uh, you know, he does uh, say that
0: the positive type of zero empathy, so going from ne- negative types, to positive types and and maybe this is really where his research started um is asperger's and other types of autism and what i find fascinating here is he has this theory that zero zero positive people have zero empathy but have a high capacity and need for systems that he calls them high systemizers
1: yes and I love that, you know, that, that the idea that society is really benefited by this level of ability mm-hmm. to detect patterns. I think that's really cool. And so you can, you know, sort of there's', a, there's a, it's like there 's a place for everyone, but if this is combined with some of other aspects which we won 't go deep into now, but if it 's combined with other aspects like Machiavellianism and malignancy, and you have no empathy, and this was simon baron cohen 's research with Broadmoor Prison, where they have a lot of psychopaths, you really can get a psychopath You get someone yeah. who just hurts and doesn 't doesn 't really care at all but yeah. let 's talk about kind of what's in between because I really love this idea again you know sort of maybe it's the other sort of big big idea that we're talking about today so number one empathy is a system and we're going to talk more about aspects of the system but number two there are degrees so you can go from this zero that we've been talking about and he has he has six levels ranging from you know level one, which is very low, but the person maybe hurts other people, but might be able to reflect on what they've done and show some regret, but they don't put any brakes on their behavior. It doesn't stop them. So that's pretty darn mm-hmm. low. It's one up from zero. <laughs> and again, this is a bell curve, and I think, we're, I think what's interesting is he puts the highest level between three and four. So what's level two, Ursula? Let's, let's, talk, let's walk through yeah. these. Well, you know, I
0: find uh, looking at these levels somewhat depressing, actually. It's a little depressing, (laughs) especially
1: when you you think the top of the bell curve, the top of the bell curve when we get there is still not very high. So Uh, anyway. No, I know.
0: And of course, you know, typically I'm just like I'm a typical human being. I want to be at the top of the bell curve and I'm Mm. looking at these and Mm -hmm. going like, oh, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble right now. In any case, um, so you were saying that in level one they're still uh, capable of hurting uh, other people, um, but it doesn't stop them, which is a little bit different from level two, where they have enough ability to see how another person would feel um, so they can see what they did was hurtful uh, or wrong. But they don't know why, and it needs to be Mm. explained to them. So that's uh, so you you're know, prob- slightly different slightly different from one is this two that they need to be told why this might be others. <laughs> right
1: right but it's a little more and they may have some breaks on doing as much hurt but you're still looking at someone who's not operating with you know, a whole lot of emotional intelligence. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. to me it seems like, and I don't know we would need to sit down with Baron Cohen because he doesn't make this as clear, but it seems like in one and two, we may have some, some cognitive empathy potential. And even in three, which is, the person may have an understanding that they have difficulty with empathy, and they may try to work with this like they may try to avoid jobs or relationships where they're constantly being demanded to be <laughs> empathetic. They might go into more of a you know a, a a profession where that doesn't seem to be as as critical to performance um and then I loved this, and this came out of an article uh, or I think this came out of his book where he says. When, so this is level three, and this is kind of, you know, one of the top of the curve here. More people here. Level three and level four is a dominant area again, but I love this. When they get home, their relief, their relief is huge. They just <laughs> want to be alone, to be themselves. So they may have really I high mean, I, cognitive empathy here, right? Is right, right. No, I I mean I read that
0: and I thought, Oh, that is so me after I spent a whole day coaching <laughs> and leading courses where it's empathy, empathy, patience empathy, you know, that's what I want. I want to crawl in between the covers <laughs> and go leave me alone. I Yeah. The, Although the I, wouldn't, is huge.
1: I wouldn't say that you were you know, that you're someone who avoids jobs or relationships, that there are constant no, demands no. on empathy. I think you're looking at someone here, you know, who, who probably is a little different. How about level four? And again, you know, level four and three, the, the, the top of the curve is between three and four. So what's level four like?
0: Yeah, level four is what you calls low average.
1: Uh, <laughs> I like a slightly
0: blunted amount of empathy. Um, they feel comfortable talking about topics other than emotions. So these are the people <laughs> that, you know, love to talk about sports, the weather, and, you know, other, <laughs> other, other things other than how you feel they are, and they feel. Um, so he says that uh, there might be some mirror neuron activity, but it's not highly developed.
1: And and in in Baron Cohen's research, and please, you know, forgive us if this makes you feel at all diminished or attacked, but his research did find that there were more men than women in level four. And, you know, we (laughs) did a thing, well, we did something, um, I think earlier this year, we we, we took a look at the research on male and female brains. And what I would say is that that is not necessarily an inherent state, although we're going to talk in a little bit about the impact of testosterone however it's probably a learned it 's a learned and developed because level five we get we go from sort of low average to slightly above average not a, he doesn 't really delineate a lot in between, so maybe there's a four point five but he says it 's marginally above average, and the curve is sloping down here. People at level five are not constantly thinking about others' feelings. Others are nevertheless on their radar a lot of the time. They take other people's perspectives into account. And I think we're really getting into, you know, more mirror neuron. We're more aware of, oh, how would this feel if it were me? You know, there's that is really opening up. And then we go mm. all the way to this level six, which is, Remarkable empathy. Remarkable empathy. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I think some of the people that we we know, we call themselves like empaths, right?
0: He is in a constant state of alert. I mean, it's really, uh, it feels like that uh, level six is that that empathy, those mirror neurons are really turned on all the time. And I think this is the reason why many of the people who are feeling empathy 24-7 twenty four seven are often so exhausted
1: yeah and and I think one of the strategies, and he doesn't really talk about this because he's more of just the hardcore research on what is it, but I do think one of the strategies you know you know you want to be working with that that I'm, we're, I don't think we would say the best thing to be is top of the curve, but I think if if you're over on that far edge you have to learn how to really have an understanding of what's mine what's yours, how to have some ability to kind of, you know, like at the end of the day or the end of the interaction, you know, kind of clean off that, what's going on with someone else, extend your heart to someone else but not have it take you over. And I I know that a lot of folks in the healing profession and in coaching that this is something they have had to learn as they've developed more mastery.
0: Yes yeah i think that uh, you know that is the the issue of uh taking care of uh, yourself and um and do something that uh, uh pro- actually i think that produces oxytocin so this is sort of where i thought we might want to go next because you mentioned testosterone um and the impact uh, it has on um on empathy um so let do you want to talk about that a little bit
1: <laughs> yeah I think let's talk about oxytocin, which is a hormone that, and we'll talk about how it gets um, generated. It's interesting. He, uh, the The big researcher here is a guy named Paul Zach, Zak, Z A K, and he calls it the shy hormone. And because it's uh, it's hard to stabilize, it's hard to give someone like a pill for oxytocin, and it generally is generated in social Um, interaction. It doesn't self-generate. And just a little aside, because it's such a a connecting hormone, plays such a role in that. And Ursula, I think that one of the reasons that during this COVID time that we're recording this in, you know, 2021, fall of 2021, 18 months of being in, you know, on and off social isolation, I think one of the reasons people have felt so much worse is it's been much harder to generate oxytocin. Well, and I think this is why um i I wanted to
0: talk about oxytocin because we are talking about you know um high empathy and self care and I think uh being in an environment and with human beings that love you and physical connection that creates oxytocin and in you know we, many of us haven't had that for you know a really right. long uh a really long time, so it, I think it makes this all just harder
1: it's the yeah absolutely and i so oxytocin a lot of people um you know the big word that gets associated with oxytocin is trust and it's it's a hormone that increases our desire and our feelings of trust in other people. And we'll talk about the the benefits of that, but there's also a downside to that there's a way it can be manipulated like everything, but it really, um, in this feeling of feeling good about other people, um, and, it's very predictive of empathy. So as oxytocin changes, and you can measure the change, this is what Paul Zach does, you can see that people report that as their oxytocin goes up, they have more empathy for the other folks. So he would call it a major player in this empathy system. Not the only thing, but it, it's, it's definitely a big one there. And so, Ursula, what do yeah. you feel like? You know, when we have oxytocin and we've generated it, what are the real benefits to that in terms of our empathy? Well, it's
0: uh, as you said. I mean, it helps us uh, trust other people, and oxytocin is also, uh, you know, uh, connected to bonding um you know we mm. feel closer to human beings we feel cared for we feel loved we feel connected to this other human being and when we feel bonded and trusted and connected you know our empathy uh, you know will increase we talked you talked a little bit about uh, stress earlier on and you know stress inhibits oxytocin so this is yeah. i think why when we're stressed we lose a little bit of that trust. We lose a little bit of that connection um, because it inhibits yeah. uh, this hormone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and, um, and so, so, again, back to sort of the stress of COVID and all of that, where people are under more stress, it's inhibiting oxytocin. And, you know, the two things, as I understand, well, there's a number of things that can, that can generate it, but it's, um, you know, the big buckets would be anticipating social interaction or having social interaction. It's very, mm. um, you know, it's it's very uh, keyed to, to touch often. Women tend to be slightly more, um, like more um, highly tuned to touch, more likely to release oxytocin on touch. But both women and men, they found massage is a good way to get it, mm-hmm. uh, dancing, and praying as well. So interestingly, that might not involve touch, but may put you in a different brain state where your brain can will start generating that as well. Um, so I think that's very very cool. There's non-pharmacological ways to to raise your oxytocin, and that's that is really hopeful. Um, one of the things that I do think is really interesting, though, is you know that there are also ways that this can be manipulated. And and Zach talks about that the way that many cons work, many, you know, know, con artists Mm -hmm. work, is they actually show, weirdly, that they trust you. And so it's one of those sort of can be a positive correlate so that oxytocin increases trust, trust increases oxytocin it goes both ways so i think about a con that i that i did not get caught up in i was in paris and and i knew about this con so i didn't get caught in it but this is the how this works like this person showed she trusted me there was a gold i was walking past and there was a ring and this woman saw that we sort of both saw the ring at the same time flash of gold went to pick it up and this young woman was there and 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 um She said, oh, you know, this is ring. It must be valuable. What should we do? I knew it was a con, so I walked away. But how the con goes is she is going to tell me that she can't, she's going to tell me that she can't take it to a pawn shop because she doesn't have ID or something. And so I need to do that. I'm trying to remember how it goes, but there's going to be something in there that shows like she Trust me, like we both put a certain amount of money in and then we're going to come back and I'm going to give her the money. And it's all fake. I can't remember how it mm. all works out. But the, the key of it is, is she's going to say, no, no, she might even say, no, no, I trust you, you know, meet me back here in 20 minutes or whatever. This is this valuable ring. Of course, it's all just bullshit. But there's various forms of that where I'm inclined to trust her because she is extending trust to me. And in the meantime, you know, it's not really money. It's paper or something like that. And that is a very classic way to get you to lower your defenses by using oxytocin. Well, I did did not
0: know that that
1: I did not know that that it works both ways literally, but it makes total yeah.
0: sense to me because trust is a part of being bonded together is trust is part of connection um and so when somebody tells you or makes you feel that they trust you, of course you feel more connected to them. It makes total sense,
1: yeah. The oxytocin goes up, and, and what they've shown is that when, Zach, you can, um, it's, an un, it's, it's unstable, but you can synthesize it and give it to people, usually, I think, through the nose by smelling it for a short time, and when they've increased oxytocin artificially, what they found is that people give more money to charity in a, in a simulated game. Like it, it really changes. They just feel more open-hearted. They feel for other people more. So the the other mm-hmm. thing that's really interesting here is that as I understand it from Paul Zack, I hope this is accurate, is that the oxytocin and testosterone use the same receptors or similar receptors and so if testosterone is high it's like if you can imagine you've got a Lego blocks so you know, and there's a red le- yet Lego block and you want to bring in your, you know, yellow block to, of oxytocin to connect with that. But there's already a blue block there that's testosterone and it's it's already connected. You can't connect your yellow block in. Yeah. Because you want to get it that. <laughs> it's busy. It's, al- it's already occupied. It's filled up. That that receptor yep, is filled. Up, it's and busy. So it's connected already with something yep.
0: else.
1: <laughs> yep. So same thing, if you give people artificial testosterone, their, you know, their trust levels will go down. And it's funny, I was, um, I have a naturopath, and sometimes people need to take testosterone for various reasons, and sometimes if it's low, that's not a problem, you know, no big deal, it's not going to screw you up. But she told me, this is totally anecdotal, but I found it really interesting, I was telling her about this research, and she got this look on her face, and she said, oh my God, I have a number of patients who are on testosterone for various health reasons, and I have noticed this pattern I couldn't figure out. It feels like they've all developed more conspiracy theories, like they've all become more fans of conspiracy (laughs) theories. She was like, she said, I want to be a lot more careful about how I give out testosterone. So anecdotal, just anecdotal. Um, but it may also explain why, and again, no, no harm, no you know, intent to you know, demonize anyone, but it might explain why typically in many cultures, younger men, young men can seem like they have less empathy. As the testosterone mm-hmm. is really kind of surging at certain ages, they have more, you know, that sort of this very typical um, response can be less empathy and more drive to be combative and all of that. And it could just be because it's, you know, they're less susceptible to oxytocin. Oxytocin. Yeah. Isn't that interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That.
0: Well, is, we have that really is. Fascinating. That um, makes that does make sense, uh, you know, on on many levels for sure.
1: Let's talk a little bit. We've got a couple of more aspects of the system. So we have mirror neurons. We have the big buckets of cognitive and felt. Then we have mirror neurons as part of this felt empathy system. We talked about oxytocin, a hormone. And now let's talk about the default mode network because that is also really critical. Um, In fact, one of our, um, you know, uh, real people we really admire in the neuroscience space, Richard Boyopsis, who's done a lot of work here, he calls it the social network, this default mode Mm -hmm. network. Um, so Ursula, mm-hmm. so what is the default mode mode network? Big picture. Yeah,
0: big picture. Default mode network um, is, as Richard Boyatzis says, it's the social network. It uh, is implicated when we are um, mind wandering, dreaming. It's when we're not focused on something external, on a on a on a task. It's really sort of the, I would say, the brain at rest, which. You know, when we talk about the default mode, we have to talk about task-positive network, the other network, really quickly. Um, And task-positive network is when we are really focused on an external task right here, right now, in this moment, which, again, is different from the default mode because it's sort of the time traveler of the brain. It goes to the past and it goes to the future. Um, and as you said, it's um, it's indispensable in the social understanding of others. So it, it, it requires us to understand and interact with, with other people and interpret their emotions, showing empathy um, and all
1: that stuff. Yeah and I I think this one of the things I find really fascinating and so and I think this is something we're going to be hearing more and more about these two different networks there the technical term is they are anti-correlated so I think of them as a seesaw as one goes up and becomes stronger the other one goes down and vice versa so if i'm very very focused on task my uh, task network is really lit up and my default mode is very, is, you know, low power and vice versa. And I think about um, this is something I had to learn so that when I'm focused on task, it's hard to think about other people and what they need and what they want and I have a practical I have a practical story about this because when we used to do a lot of training in person I would get into the training room and my goal in that moment is get the chairs set up get my powerpoint ready get it all get the handouts out I need to do that. I am so on task right here, right now, what needs to happen. And what would happen is our lovely assistants, you know, sometimes I hadn't seen these people for a year and I love and adore them. They'd come in and they would say, how are you? it's so good to see you. And what's going on? And I would want to kill them because in that moment, in that moment, well, not literally kill them, but I would want them to go away because in that moment yeah. I didn't care. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I cared about the, you know, do I have my pens? And so what I yeah. learned as I learned about these two different networks that I learned to say to them, take a moment, I would take, I have to take a breath, and I would say, I am so glad to see you. Let me, let's get everything set up and then let's sit down and connect because I couldn't do both and now i understand yeah. why not when one is really high as it is if i'm under time pressure trying to get it ready so it was good to really see that in action and i do think we see this in organizations where you you know you can kind of feel that when when uh, um when you're super super focused on task there's just not as much bandwidth to be in that very moment understanding how other people feel so we think good leaders need to learn how to be good dancers back and forth between the networks yeah yeah no and i i totally agree i've observed this with
0: myself um particularly when i'm at home and uh you know trying to get ready for the next call and i'm you know deeply into handouts and powerpoints and my lovely husband comes in and you know lo and behold i mean god help us he wants a hug or something it's like well, who are you <laughs> who are you human being and what what, what is the matter with you
1: um, and
0: it's you know and it it makes it makes so much it makes so much sense um you know on so many levels that it's just weird it's hard it's hard to switch uh, your attention from this yeah. external focus to the, you know, the social network and uh, consider the emotions and feelings of other people, people, uh, when you're in it, that it, state. It have,
1: and have empathy, and I think about one of the things, and maybe it's a, you know, hopefully maybe a potential takeaway, um, because it made me, is that this can actually give you empathy for that, so um, I, let tell it, I'll tell a story that from this weekend, my sweetheart, who is working out of town right now, was in town for the weekend, and we had some stuff we needed to do, like we were having a dinner party, and there was stuff we needed to do, so, you know, I walked in to see him at his house, and it was absolutely clear to me after about two minutes that, I was expecting default mode network relationship and all of that, and he was already in task. (laughs) And plus, he had just gotten back to his house. He needed to sort his mail. You know, he was so in task. And I just looked at him and I said, are you in task right now? And he said, yeah. I said, okay, let's do (laughs) tasks. That's fine. (laughs) And then we'll do relationship rather than I – I I think that it would have been like for me if I hadn't had this understanding, I would have maybe felt hurt or why isn't he happy to see me? He was happy to see me. He was just in a different network. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's, it's really I've I've actually got just just this light bulb moment right now. Although why it's light bulbing for me right now is is sort of somewhat weird. But I have that when I go to see uh, my lovely daughter Jessica. You know when I take care of the grandkids. You know I walk in there already for hi, lovely darling, I love you so much, big hug, and she is already with one foot out the door. You know having her breakfast and <laughs> coffee and saying okay, I have a meeting at one thirty, I have a call at twelve thirty, I have a call at three. Don't forget to pass Back, you know the gym the gym food for Kobe and she needs a snack goodbye and I'm going like okay.
1: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> don't Same you thing? and and it is I totally it is totally and can't you can't you you know have empathy for me because I you know may rearrange my schedule to be here and all of that and it's if I we can understand that and and then I I also think there's room there to then do a little design, which, you know, I did with my sweetheart, you know, saying, okay, we'll do this, and then let's have some time to connect. And he was great about that, you know, to say to Jesse, okay, but let's find some time where we can just connect, you know. You know, it's not that we don't get our needs met, but being able to understand that these two networks are anti-correlated. And, you know, sometimes people are not going to be bringing you empathy because they're not in the network where it's available. And the same true for us. So really, really, really cool. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, the right hemisphere. And kind of to go back with, I think when we were first studying neuroscience, you know, 11 years ago, something like that, um, probably what I assumed at the time or, you know, had read was, you know, the right hemisphere is the empathetic mm-hmm. hemisphere. The, the left hemisphere is mm-hmm. the logical hemisphere. And then, you know, you look at the more fine-tuned research and you think, no, there are aspects of empathy that are on the left. There's actually aspects of logic that are on the right. So it's a big mess. Yes. But, um, but there is a particular way that the right hemisphere kind of weighs in in this empathy thing. So to be really clear, it's not the only place for empathy, but it does play – it plays a role in the system. So what what is that that we need to acknowledge?
0: I think what we need to acknowledge is that the right hemisphere, uh, because it sees the bigger picture, because it sees the whole versus the left, which is more – uh, about specifics, and uh, is also sort of somewhat more interested in in the mechanics. The right hemisphere mm-hmm. is not, and this whole big picture taking everything in, I think is really, um, it's. It, I think it really helps empathy because you do need to see the big picture in order to understand people. I mean, you know, it's all about context.
1: yes absolutely and you know for for any you know neuroscience fans or not you know there's a lot this is an area of neuroscience where there's a lot of what we affectionately call neuro myths you know you can be a right hemisphere or a left hemisphere person and you know a lot of that is very much up for debate at this point but what we do know that is very well validated is they're different they're not the same and as ursula was mm-hmm. saying as you're saying you know the the right hemisphere has a more glow it processes big picture whereas the left is giving us much more specifics and details. And that's the the beautiful symbiotic relationship of I can look out my window right now and I'm blessed to be in Santa Fe and look at all the mountains and I can see, and I can also zero in on the house across the way and really go, oh, I've never noticed they had that kind of roof. So it's the, it's the both that gives us a healthy, you know, really productive brain, but... This right hemisphere big picture um, understanding the whole thing is is somewhat plays a major role, i think as you would say in yeah. in aspects of empathy
0: yeah, and I think uh, you know to even um, understand it even more is than looking at left hemisphere processing um, i think it's it's really much more focused on um, you know, so sort of seeing the people as machines, you know, what is, or rather, yeah. what is useful? What is the usefulness yes. or the not usefulness <laughs> about this person? <laughs> which really doesn't lead, you know, doesn't lend, lend itself to empathy. Like, what's useful about no. this person? What can they do for I me? Always... <laughs>
1: I always think it's the left hemisphere that named the department human resources. Like, what are the resources we have? And, oh, you're a resource, and we need you in Singapore right now. It doesn't matter that you just bought a house in, you know, Germany. We need you here because you are our resource. And so I'm going to manipulate the resources like chess pieces rather than saying, oh, Ursula just bought a house in Germany, I wonder if this would work for her, let me talk to her, let me understand her perspective, I need to go more big picture there, and not just be so focused on, you know, moving the pieces around on the board. So the right hemisphere gives us, as you're thinking, you have to have that ability in order to have empathy, if all you think about is in terms of mechanics, you're going to upset a lot of people, I
0: think. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, it explains my life quite frankly because, you know, we've been moved we've, we've moved around the world like little chess pieces and often I felt like, you know, it doesn't matter whether we just had a baby and we were living in Vancouver, now, you know, two and a half months later as I was just wanting to nest, off we were going to Toronto and it was like, yeah, you go to right. the little chess the little chess board. That's really funny. We
1: need, we need we need you. We need, we need you, you over there. here. And it's yeah. it's interesting. I read an article years ago. I think it was Harvard Business Reviews. So you can. Might, I might be wrong on that, but it was one of those kind of places. Pretty sure it was HBR. And it was the right hemisphere leadership gap is what it was called. And saying that there are uh, folks who, uh, particularly if you're moving from COO to CEO, I think is what they were talking about. Again, it's an older article that's. I'm vaguely remembering but what they were saying is if you are someone who's been rewarded in your career for moving the pieces around moving budget spreadsheets around and all of that and now you need to go into a a different kind of leadership where you have to be able to do that but you also have to be able to be aware of the chess pieces have feelings, and that this is what they were seeing is <laughs> was blocking people from being successful, and I, I would imagine that many of the folks that are listening to this have had that experience, right? And I've certainly well, had that I experience. A, I have where, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, in, in coaching,
0: I think this shows up uh, rather a lot. I have a, a client in a very high uh, HR position right now who, um, who is uh, struggling with that very thing, um, having a CEO that is moving, continuing to move the chess pieces around and not realizing that they're not made out of wood, but they're human beings with feelings. And um, it is, it's a struggle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're not made out of wood. Well, you know, we've only got a few more minutes before we before we need to end our show. Ursula, what would be your, you know, two or three pieces of advice? So if, so if we're understanding this as a system, um, one of the things that we know, then I'll ask for your advice, one of the things we know about the brain is that through the process of neuroplasticity and practice and reflection and using new neural networks more and developing, we can, you know, we can learn so many things including empathy. So what's your top two or three tips for if someone's saying, wow, as you're talking today, maybe I'm a level three at empathy and it would help to be at a higher level. What would you tell them in terms of how to develop more empathy?
0: Well, I think from uh, you know the 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 advice I would give myself, and therefore hopefully it will also be helpful to other people, is uh, try and uh, manage your stress level because that has a huge hmm. impact on my empathy and hmm. my feeling for other people. And uh, you know, certainly I can do cognitive empathy in that situation, but felt empathy really flies <laughs> out the window. So that would be uh, yeah. that would be one thing. Um, I really think that um, one of uh, my struggles, aside from you know the the, the smooth dance of the networks, uh, is uh, that I have a tendency towards rigidity a little bit, and that is very mm. much a, sort of a um, an unwanted byproduct of left hemisphere processing. Um, you know that narrow focus can really lead to even more narrow focus where you know the human being gets very rigid and judgmental so i would uh, I would advise when you find yourself in a very narrow, tight space um, where you feel you're blaming others and you 're being judgmental, and it 's really sort of this very narrow viewpoint that you've adopted try and move your brain into a bigger picture thinking mode. That has helped mm. me a lot. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have this, I this love that. narrative. Yeah, I have a narrative in my brain that when I feel this, the, I, my narrative and my question in, for myself is, what's the bigger picture here? What's the bigger picture here? Yeah. And it's really helped me a
1: lot. I love that because often if you take that moment to say what's the bigger picture, you know, like if I think about if I've gotten annoyed with someone and I can't see their point of view and I'm just, you know, irritable and rigid, if I ask myself what the bigger picture is, it's often, well, the bigger picture is I don't want to lose the relationship. The relationship's important yeah. to me or, or you know, my long-term Maybe I'm irritated right now at this person's asking me for, but long term I want to have a business relationship with them and things like that. So it can it can kind of make you step back a bit, and I I think that's really good advice. Um, mm. Trying to think of what 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 mine might be. Yeah, what, um, what, what you would you be? <laughs> I, I, well, I love the manage your stress levels because then your natural empathy, whether it's cognitive, affective, or both, is, has a better chance to come out. I think there are things that you can do to practice. So if you, for example, if you're someone who says, I don't feel other people's feelings as much, like I'd like to be better. I have a little bit of that. I'd like to be better. I think literally like get some, get some heart-tugging movies that you know, have some emotional component, and just watch them and see if you can feel at all what the character is feeling. you know, if they're watching a mm-hmm. loved one who's ill or something, you know see if you can feel that work to feel it, because I, I think sometimes the beginnings of those mirror neurons are there, and they just need a little help and a little practice um, to connect, mm-hmm. and that could be that could be a way or to just make a practice of as you're with people asking yourself, I wonder what they're feeling right now. I wonder what they're feeling. I wonder what they're feeling. What are the cues? Is there anything I feel for myself? And, you know, for some folks where the mirror neurons are a little, feel a little more out of reach, you can develop better cognitive empathy. And so asking yourself, what are the cues about how this person might be feeling? And if it's a close friend, loved one, family member, someone that you trust, validate, ask them, say, I'm, so, I'm, my, I think right now that you're feeling like this, is that right? Because the more that you are willing to make a mistake, check out your assumptions and validate, it, it automatically fine tunes your brain. So if you, you know, check it out 20 times and, and you're right, eight, 18 of them, you'll have a better, you'll have better cognitive empathy well i really love that
0: i really love that i think this is also a great way to be in touch with other people and to bond because everybody loves mm-hmm. to be asked how, you know is this how you're feeling right now or am i wrong you know i mean right. it, 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 i really love i really love that because people will be feeling seen and heard through that question well um, well yeah. and what
1: you're making me re- realize is if you then never actually develop any better understanding you know and it, it it's still sort of a you know mystery to you you can ask that question and that alone is empathetic so yeah. it's fine you don't <laughs> you can say you know i'm i'm look i'm since right now i'm i'm sensing that you might be a little sad about this is that right And if the person says no, I'm actually excited, but they still feel seen and loved and heard, and that you care about them. so who cares if you get it right So, so having the yeah. you know getting over ourselves and having the willingness to fail and be wrong, you know as you said it it's, that's empathetic even 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 in and of itself, so you can't screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Well, we this are This has been such a fun, fun conversation. Are, yeah. Yeah, this exactly. was vi- this was very fun. Um, uh well, if you want to actually find out a little bit more about uh, us and the work that we do with coaches, um, we have a wonderful website, uh, beaboveleadership.com. Um, we also have a fabulous YouTube channel, even if I have to say so myself, with uh, great recordings on coaching and neuroscience and consciousness topics. Um, what else? What else do we want
1: to Hello, lovely listeners. Well, you can also go back through our archives on Blog Talk Radio. Follow us on Blog Talk Radio. We're, um, you know, in a in a new time of, of getting things out there, usually once a month, a deep conversation about something related to neuroscience and human development. So um, we would love to connect with you on any of our channels. We have a, also Facebook yes. page, Be Above Leadership. So thank you all for yeah. listening. And Ursula, always great chatting with you and what a fun time.
0: Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, it was lovely, sweetie. Take good care. Have a great week, everybody. Um, and talk to you soon.
1: Bye, everyone. Bye-bye right